Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. I caught up with CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, not long after she returned from reporting inside Taliban-controlled territory in Afghanistan. She was one of the first Western journalists to access Taliban territory to see what life is like under their control. She interviewed both civilians and Taliban officials and is on the podcast today to discuss her reporting. CNN aired her report in late February titled 36 Hours with the Taliban, which I strongly recommend you view. I've posted a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. We kick off discussing the story behind her story, that is how an unprecedented reporting project like this can be carried out in such a volatile security environment. We also discuss how she and her team navigated gender dynamics inherent in a female journalist interviewing Taliban officials. We then spend a good deal of time talking through some of her key findings about how the Taliban have evolved over the last 17 years since the U.S. invasion. Her report comes at a vital time as the U.S. and Taliban officials are negotiating face-to-face, and as Clarissa Ward explains, the fact of these ongoing negotiations helps provide some context for her reporting. This is a great episode. I am a huge Clarissa Ward fan, and I suspect you are as well. The last time she was on this show was about two and a half years ago, after she recently returned from then-rebel-held Aleppo to report from behind rebel lines, and I'll post a link to that interview as well. A couple quick notes before we begin. I mentioned in a previous episode that I will be in Oxford, England, participating in the Skoll World Forum in early April. If you are participating in that forum, send me a note. I would love to meet up. If you're in Oxford, I would love to meet up as well. Send me a note. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Also, I know based on the statistics available that there are a number of you who are listening to this show in China. If that is you, if you are listening to me right now in China, including in Hong Kong, please send me an email. I have a couple of quick questions for you. I'd love to run something by you. So please do send me a note and you can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right. Now here is my conversation with CNN's Clarissa Ward. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We are some of the only Western journalists to have had um, access behind Taliban lines, really since 9-11, 
there have been a handful of other journalists who have managed to go in and to visit territory. Um, but the access that we were given was unprecedented because we had access both to the military side uh, and also to civilian life. And so we were able to see really this newer incarnation of the Taliban, whereby the group is trying to show that it's adopting a more pragmatic approach to governance, that it can be more accommodating, that it is more intent on providing basic services, meeting the needs of civilians living in areas under its control, and also trying to show that it can work with the Afghan government in uh, certain areas and certain circumstances in these sort of ad hoc hawk examples that you find of, of cooperation mm. between the two groups. So the access that we uh, received was was extraordinary. So can you sort of tell the, the story behind the story? How did mm. um, this, this trip come about? I have to take imagine it, it takes a lot of logistics and, and planning mm. to pull mm. something like this off. And, you know, something that's very much at the, the surface of your reporting are some of the gender dynamics at play that you and, and right. I think a female producer and a male cameraman mm. Were, mm. were permitted behind Taliban lines and to interview these Taliban officials one-on-one. So can you sort of break that down a little bit and sure. explain how, how this reporting uh, project came about. So I have been, uh, I became a journalist after 9-11 and the uh, invasion of Afghanistan and everything that we saw of the Taliban, their brutality, their treatment of women, their harboring of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Those were all sort of seminal events that were seared into my mind during that uh, that phase as I decided to become a journalist very, very early on in my career. And since then, I would say that the, the group has continued to be an area of fascination for me, partially because it is seemingly been shrouded in secrecy uh, for 17 years. We so rarely get to see what uh, what their world looks like and what the world looks like for people living under their control. So this has long been an area of interest and preoccupation for me. As these uh, peace talks were going on getting underway in Doha between the US and the Taliban it seemed to have a sort of renewed importance to me okay the US is clearly looking at options at ways to get out of Afghanistan thinking of withdrawing its troops sitting down at the negotiating table with the Taliban who are we potentially or who is the US potentially handing the country over to what does the Taliban look like today is it the same Taliban that we so uh, vividly remember from those days before and after 9/11 so this was a question that was on my mind a lot and I started to think how on earth can we go and see what life looks like in Taliban territory obviously I knew that that this was not something Western journalists were able to do, that many had been kidnapped in the process. And so my producer, Selma Abdulaziz, and I decided to approach an Afghan filmmaker, Najibullah Qureshi, who has done extraordinary award-winning reporting, um, many reports with the Taliban. And the Taliban, while he's not a supporter of theirs in any way, shape or form, they respect him because he's even handed, he's fair and he's very professional in the way he carries himself. So we approached Naj um, and we said to Naj, listen, we really would like to go um, and visit with the Taliban. 
with you. And initially he sort of laughed and said, that's kind of difficult. And I said, I know it's difficult, but let's really think about how we can make it happen. And and that's how it started. And that precipitated a four month process of going back and forth, firstly with the Taliban to get a sense of whether they would be amenable to such a thing and under what sort of constrictions. And then once the Taliban had given their, uh, you know, their, I guess, permission, I won't say their blessing, but their permission, and then began the process of trying to persuade CNN management that it was a good idea to allow me and Selma to go and spend 36 hours with the Taliban. And Which that was, was actually, the tougher sell, yeah. It was the tougher sell. It was the tougher sell and with very good reason because obviously when you're dealing with this sort of a situation, you're going a lot on trust. You're going a lot on, if you're looking at a group like the Taliban, on Pashtun Wali, on the covenant of security, on the sanctity of an invitation that's being offered at the highest levels of the Taliban leadership. And while a lot of us who are on the ground understand that these dynamics are hugely important and actually do mean a lot to management sitting half a world away, understandably, um, there are very real security concerns and getting the Taliban's word uh, is not necessarily going to be enough to satisfy um, their concerns. So eventually, um, after months and months of back and forth, uh, both sides had basically agreed to a framework for this trip. And it, it was made clear to us uh, on the Taliban side, that as women, we had to understand uh, the customs and conditions and traditions that we would be entering into. We understood that if we were in public places, we had to cover our faces wearing the niqab or if we had chosen to the burqa, but the niqab is easier to take on and off. So that's what we went with. And we understood that we would not be allowed to sleep in the same place as Naj. We would not be allowed to eat our meals with him, that we would have to sit with the women and children. And we decided that we were willing to do that, partially because it was going to afford us access to a part of the population that really no other Western journalists have talked to since 9-11, which are women and children of Taliban fighters or of civilians living under Taliban control. And so that's how it got started. Uh, and so the, the first uh, stop on on this sort of 36-hour uh, story was at this this health clinic. And, you know, to me, it just seems that that clinic holds just so much explanatory value mm. when it mm. comes to understanding U.S. involvement in the Afghan mm. war mm. And, and sort of the Afghan uh, relation, the Afghan government's relationship with the Taliban. I mean, you showed very clearly that this was a clinic with a USAID plaque on the wall built by the United States. Uh, it is controlled by the Taliban, but the doctor's salary is played by the Afghan government. And that's just like such a complex and interesting dynamic to me that- I know. See, yeah. It's, it's really a metaphor for the complexities and nuances of Afghanistan. This was built by the US. It's run by the Taliban, but the Afghan government provides medicine and pays the doctor's salaries. I mean, just trying to get your head around that is <laughs> requires uh, some mental gymnastics because on the face of it, it doesn't make sense. And yet somehow it functions. So essentially this uh, clinic is in an area called 
Pimtal district, which uh, as much of Afghanistan is now is kind of a contested area. Basically, the Taliban about 18 months ago uh, went in, forced the government out, and the government is now only has a presence in a small base in the district capital. But the rest of the territory, the rest of the district is really under the control of the Taliban. So what the Taliban did this time, though, uh, was instead of going in once they took over territory and shutting down the school and shutting down the clinic and firing all the doctors and uh, trying to change all the rules and, and make everything function only according to how they want things to function, was they took a slightly more pragmatic approach. They said, you know what? The civilians are going to hate us if we shut this clinic down. So we need to keep the clinic open. But how are we going to do that logistically? And essentially what they did, and you're seeing more and more instances of this across Afghanistan, and I should say it's not just the Taliban being pragmatic here or being more accommodating, it's the Afghan government too. I think after so many years of war, both sides have come to an understanding that they need to really start putting the interests of ordinary Afghan people ahead of this war. And this is an instance where it appears to be working. And so you have this kind of dynamic where we walked into one room, we found two female midwives, um, their faces were uncovered, even though Naj was with us, our cameraman, they did not try to cover their faces. There was a sexual health education poster uh, on the wall of this office with, you know, cartoons about condoms and other forms of birth control. And initially I was really surprised. I thought, how on earth is the Taliban allowing these types of things to still be on the walls? And, and I asked this midwife, this 22-year-old woman, Fazila, what was going on. And she said, listen, the Taliban really, since they took over, they don't interfere with our work. They don't interfere with us as women. They haven't... Uh, forced male doctors in the practice to stop treating women. They haven't taken down our posters. They really don't uh, get involved other than in making sure that the clinic stays open, that people are getting what they need. And this reportedly is the same thing that's happening in this school uh, in the district as well. Although we didn't get to see the school because it was winter break, um, but it's reportedly the same Thing. The teachers' salaries and, and the education materials are coming from the government, but the Taliban's the one that keeps the school open, that makes sure, sure that the teachers come to work. And so you do have these sort of ad hoc agreements. Um, I don't think anyone believes that it's perfect, and I don't think anyone believes necessarily that this comes from some deep ideological shift within the Taliban. Uh, I think many would argue that this is just uh, them being cynical or pragmatic and realizing that while these talks are gaining momentum, this is the moment to show that they can be mature actors, that they, if they sit down at the negotiating table, if they cooperate with the Afghan government, that things are more likely to go their way. Um, and some kind of agreement is more likely to be reached with the U.S., which could then precipitate the withdrawal of U.S. troops, which obviously for them is the end goal here. So, but whatever the motivations, the result is, is an interesting one. And, and, and that's what we saw. And you also, you know, demonstrated that there are girls, elementary age school, school aged girls in, in, in school as well. Mm -hmm. So because the school was closed for winter break, but they took us to a madrasa and even a madrasa, which is a religious school, traditionally you would not see girls in Taliban controlled areas studying in a madrasa. But we did see a group of about a dozen or so girls studying there. We sat down with the teacher 
uh, a man called Yar Muhammad, who's it's a little odd to see a teacher with a huge AK-47 um, across his lap, but he uh, told us that he splits his time between fighting on the front lines with the Taliban or for the Taliban and teaching. And he explained that basically the Taliban allows for the education of women, but, and this is a big but, once girls hit puberty, they can no longer go to a school with boys because in a school with boys, men and women or girls and boys of different sexes might have interaction with each other. And that's really um, where the problem lies, because then you have a situation where girls who want to continue their education beyond puberty need to be educated in girls only schools. And those schools don't exist yet. This is the exact same excuse that the Taliban used in the late 90s to deprive millions of women of education. So I do think that any sort of shifts or changes that we're seeing in the Taliban should be viewed with a healthy dose of skepticism um, and cynicism even. But one thing that's really important for people to remember, and it's easy to forget, that is that when you're in these rural areas like where we were, where very little of the billions and billions of dollars that the U.S. has uh, you know, poured into funding, to infrastructure, to educational projects. Very little of that has trickled down to these areas. And the reality is that girls and, and women's education is simply not a priority, whether you're in a Taliban-controlled area or whether you're in a government-controlled area. It's just not viewed as being crucially important in the way that we in the West would view it as being. So the dynamic is a little different. And when we would talk to civilians in these areas, well, what do you think of the Taliban? And how have they improved and how have they changed? And I remember this woman saying to me, you know, they haven't changed at all frankly, but that's not our problem. Our issue right now is that we don't have food to put on the table. The fighting is relentless. The airstrikes are constant. We don't have any semblance of normalcy in our lives. And we've lived through endless war and we want to see an end to it. So their concerns are less political than they are existential. So in the course of this story, you interviewed two Taliban uh, officials, a military commander and a uh, political leader. He, he was sort of called the, the shadow sort of governor of, of the area in, mm -hmm. which, uh, in which you were reporting from. What did your conversations with those two men tell you uh, about, um, one, the, the ability of, of Taliban to uh, implement some sort of like effective governance structure of mm. areas under their mm. control? And number two, uh, about your sort of broader ideas, your broader um, thesis about the sort of this new iteration of the Taliban and mm -hmm, how they've mm -hmm, changed mm -hmm. and where and how they are changing. So the very fact that the Taliban now has shadow governors was in and of itself interesting to me. And um, because these shadow governors are getting killed or arrested or abducted in raids a lot, they, they don't have a sort of official office where people can go to. So when the shadow governor for Chemtal, Maulavi Haksar, turned up in the village where we were filming... Um, in order to give us an interview, it was interesting to see that like a crowd of villagers, when they heard that he was in town, they quickly gathered um, outside the building where he was. And they had these white sheets of paper, which were their petitions, their issues that they were trying to get resolved. And that there are all kinds of issues, legal issues, land disputes, money disputes, things of this nature. And we talked a little bit uh, to this group of men who were waiting to see the governor. And they said to us, listen, 
if you want to get something resolved by the Afghan government, it takes a long time and you have to pay a lot of bribes. And even then, there's no guarantee that it's going to happen. The Taliban, while they may be harsh, they work they work quickly and they deliver or they have a reputation with people in these areas for delivering justice. Uh, and people in these areas, by the way, want to see Sharia law implemented. They believe that Sharia law is what will give them uh, the justice that it is that they're looking for. So there's no question that the Taliban is really trying to capitalize on I would say like disenchantment or disillusionment and perceived rampant corruption within the Afghan government and show that they can do things differently, that they can meet the people's needs, that they can do things effectively, and most importantly, that they can do it quickly. When we sat down with Haksar, it was very interesting. We had been told not to ask political questions because we were meeting with uh, leaders at a local level. They didn't have the authority to talk about issues like the peace talks. And they were quite mindful of that. When we would ask political questions, they would say, that's a question for the spokesperson of the Taliban. That's not something I can answer you. Um, but Haksar really revealed to me, or the, this interview kind of embodied this juxtaposition that I think you see within the Taliban now, whereby on the one hand, when I asked him if he followed the news, he said that he listened to the radio and that he was on Facebook and that he has a smartphone, indicating that, okay, there's a sense that the Taliban is moving with the times, that they are aware of the power of social media, um, although I've been told that in other areas, smartphones are forbidden. But I thought that that was interesting, that he is listening to the radio, getting news, that he's engaging with social media. On the other hand, when I said, OK, well, let's talk now about this idea of the hand of the thief should be cut, uh, the adulterer should, should be stoned to death. He said, no, yes, of course, we implement that. We implement the, the Sharia. So there was no sense that they had they were becoming more accommodating in terms of their fundamental ideology mm -hmm. and shifting away from some of the brutal practices that of course they have traditionally been associated with and by the way there are lots of uh, places that or or people who will talk about wanting to implement sharia law but they will still have the caveat Yes, the adulterer can technically be stoned to death, but are you aware that under Sharia law, four people have to witness the act of penetration in order to actually implement the death penalty? And if someone accuses another person of committing adultery and they can't prove it, they're the one who gets lashed. So actually, when you really get into, and I don't want to get off yeah, on a tangent be, yeah. about like the hood punishments of uh, of the Sharia, but let's just say there's a lot more nuance yeah. uh, than the so Taliban centuries is of jurisprudence that uh, exactly. need to be need to be um, evaluated. Um, so exactly. Can I ask one more um, sort of behind the scenes uh, question? Yeah. The night you spent um, uh, there, what were your sort of sleeping uh, arrangements like? There's sort of like this ominous um, moment in the reporting yes. where you said, uh, you know, your cell phone service cut off and this is the most dangerous time, but you know, obviously yes. worked out. Just what was that like? What was, what was that so, arrangement? Um, you know, we had a little bit of – you are nervous uh, as night falls because this is traditionally when the airstrikes uh, take place. And because the Taliban shuts down cell phone towers, you really have no way of communicating um, with our sort of security team at CNN during that period. So there, there were several reasons to be concerned or nervous. 
At the same time, uh, we were treated incredibly graciously by our hosts, um, who was an Islamic teacher who had studied at a madrasa in Pakistan. He spoke fluent classical Arabic, which was good for us because it enabled us to communicate with him because Salma and I do not speak Dari or Pashto. Um, and he came and sat with us in the women's area of the house, the host, and and talked to us and said that he had never seen a foreign journalist in his life, that he had never imagined he would, that he was very excited that we were there. And it's important to understand he's not officially part of the Taliban, but he is certainly a supporter of the Taliban. He wants to uh, reinstate the Islamic Emirate, as the Taliban calls itself. And it just gave us a real Really different window onto life in these areas and particularly spending time with the women and children in the house who were incredibly friendly and gracious, who offered us all the best food, who kept making sure that the heater was pointed towards us. And we ended up sleeping on mattresses on the floor in the room with them, alongside them. And um, it gives you a different sense to sort of put away the geopolitics of a conflict for a second, to put away the sort of cultural differences and to have these human moments where as women we're sitting around, we're talking about our children, we're playing with children, we're enjoying a meal together. There's something very humanizing about that, which I view personally as being essential to my reporting Mm -hmm. uh, and to being essential in general to kind of, improving communication between different cultures, particularly when you have these sort of chasms uh, between us, which are often resulting in in conflict. And what we saw talking to these women and talking to this man is that um, essentially for a lot of people, the most important thing regardless of their feelings about America, regardless of their feelings about the Afghan government, regardless of their beliefs, some of which are absolutely fundamentalists, is that they're committed to peace. They want peace. Everybody in Afghanistan at this stage is desperate for some let up because we're not just talking about 17 years since the U.S. invasion. We're talking about years of civil war before that and the Soviet invasion before that. The military commander who we spoke to, who uh, estimated that his age is somewhere between 30 and 40, although he doesn't actually know what how old he is, which I think gives you a sense of the education level that you're dealing with here. He had told me he has never lived in a time where there was peace. He has never known peace in his entire life. He picked up a gun as soon as he was old enough to carry one. And so across the board, I would say that you do get a sense that people are exhausted and, and they're looking for for options. And, and I think all sides feel the same way. Um, finally, can you just describe that, that final scene in, in, in your story, mm. that massing of... Taliban fighters for a photo op, it seemed, it seemed like mm. insane to, to me. Um, and, we and, felt it was insane. Y- yeah. We felt it was insane. And like we a were drone strike could come anytime. It. Yeah. It, we had not asked them to do anything like that. The military commander who had arrived at the house and, uh, you know, was annoyed that we were going to film outside with the governor and told us we should have brought a man and then asked us to walk behind him um, at the one who didn't know if he was 30 or 40. He wanted to show off for our cameras, basically. And so he took us to the outskirts of the village. And as we arrived, we saw this 
massing of dozens and dozens of Taliban fighters on these motorcycles. They're waving the distinctive white Taliban flag. They're carrying uh, weapons, including RPGs. And our initial reaction, Naj, who's done a lot of stuff with the Taliban before, said he had never seen more than 10 Taliban fighters in one place at one time because the group is experienced enough to know uh, that it's incredibly dangerous for them to mass like that, that there are drones all over the skies um, and that airstrikes regularly, particularly since peace talks have begun. Um, these guys are getting hammered by U.S. airstrikes. And so... Um, we started shooting pictures, of course, but we were also very nervous because it was so clearly a, a conspicuous and obvious target and there would be no way for the U.S. military or if it was the Afghan Air Force to know that we were uh, American journalists or that we were journalists at all, frankly. So uh, we, after about 10 minutes of, uh, of shooting this sequence, we said, to the commander, you know, are you not concerned? This is, this is dangerous. And he said, no, no, we're not afraid of anything. We're not afraid of being uh, of a strike. This is our jihad and, and, and we continue with it. And so we left pretty quickly after that. And we made the decision uh, to leave Taliban territory after that, because we felt that it had probably attracted enough attention um, that we were no longer really comfortable moving around with these escorts in this uh, kind of convoy. So it was a very uncomfortable moment. And frankly, you know, from the purposes of like what they were trying to communicate, it was a little confounding because for days they've been trying to tell us, hey, we're ready to govern and we're ready for peace. But on the other hand, they're also wanting to show but we can still mass a ton of fighters and we're not afraid of dying and we're not afraid of kind of bringing death to other people because our concern of course was for our own personal safety, but we're also thinking, hold on a second guys, we're on the outskirts of a village here. You're going to get other people killed in this area, ordinary civilians by staging this kind of a, a massing or a show of force here. Um, finally, is there anything else you, you want to sort of convey uh, about your reporting about the Taliban? I know we're, we're just about out of time. What became clear throughout the course of this trip is that the Taliban clearly believes that victory is within its grasp and it is willing to do and say whatever it needs to do and say in order to, to gain or reach that victory. And the very real question becomes, okay, what happens when U.S. troops do withdraw? What happens if the Taliban um, does enter some form of co-governance with the Afghan government? What would that look like? How would it function? And how would people be affected by it? And while the civilians that we spoke to were less concerned with who is in charge than in bringing some peace, of course, if you go to urban areas like Kabul, where people are more educated, where women are more empowered, you're going to find many people who are terrified and horrified at the prospect of a Taliban resurgence, who worry that all these hard-fought gains may May soon be lost. And, and there's no easy words of comfort to give those people based on anything that we saw during our trip. Well, Clarissa, thank you so much for your time and for your reporting, most importantly. Thank you so much, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Clarissa Ward. And before you do anything else, 
do check out her report on CNN.com. I've posted a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. It's really impressive and important reporting. Thank you all. See you next time. Bye.